Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Last chapter in your Bible. We're just looking at three verses this morning. And while you're turning there, one of the, the greatest sounds a, a new parent hears is the sound of their baby crying for the first time. I remember almost fainting when that was a little bit delayed in our firstborn. Um, she, she's okay, thankfully. But she came out not looking so okay. But anyways, uh, yeah, so I almost fainted, but it was, I was so glad to hear her cry. And um, that cry, it lets you know that, that they're alive, that they're breathing. It lets us know that, that they're also uncomfortable, that they need something. Right? Um, they they want to be close to their mother again. So they're usually immediately placed upon uh, the mother's chest and begin feeding within that first hour, preferably. Uh, they're, they're craving that nourishment. But there's another kind of thirst that we're all born with, uh, that we possess from birth, and yet we're not able to quench that thirst with anything that this world has to offer. It's a thirst that we keep trying to satisfy. We go from one thing to the next, but we continually struggle, right? We, we're, never, we're never satisfied. We're, we're born with a thirst that nothing in this world can quench. And unfortunately, due to the fall, we do. We fill our medicine cabinet with all kinds of worldly solutions. Every label promises to provide this lasting satisfaction with minimal side effects. And it's like dousing hot sauce on your tongue. It just, every, every dose just makes you crave for something more. And you just become all the more thirsty. And so this, this text, it concludes with the only answer that truly satisfies and it's the offer to come to Jesus who freely offers living water so that you might never thirst again. So we'll reflect upon that offer this morning. But before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the clear presentation of the gospel that is found in your word. Lord, we think of the many confusing and challenging passages that we've faced as we've made our way through the book of Revelation. It's not easy to understand all of it, and yet, Lord, the gospel is clear, and our need for Christ is clear, and our thirst for something that this world cannot satisfy is also clear. It's evident to all. The Lord, help us to recognize that that thirst can only be ultimately quenched by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, if anyone here does not know him, I pray that they might turn to him this morning and find in him the rest that they seek. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. Blessed are those who washed their robes 
so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendants of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, you'll see our, our first point is looking at verses 14 through 15 is the purification of the city. The purification of the city. At the, at the final judgment, when Christ returns, he, a separation takes place. Separation between the sheep and the goats. Right? The sheep enter the city through the gates while the goats are banished. And those who recognize their filthy robes are the ones who wash them in the blood of the Lamb. We, we see that reference to the blood of the Lamb back in chapter 7, verse 14. And so that's an important cross-reference for this. It's the same group that we see. In fact, turn to chapter 7, and I just want to point this out to you. Chapter 7, verse 14, we read, And I, I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So how did they wash their robes? They washed them in the blood of the Lamb, and that's what cleansed them. That's what made them white. And this group of saints, then, is, is gathered, now entering in to the city to partake of the tree of life, according to verse 14 of chapter 22. But that word for wash is in the present tense. And so it indicates this ongoing washing. And there's a sense in which salvation is past, present, and future. Right? The, the, this emphasis here is on the, that present tense. The need for ongoing washing that takes place in a believer's sanctification, their growth in Christ. And so it's represented by a life of continual repentance. Right, we've seen this group again back in chapter 7. These are the saints that, that represent all of the elect gathered together before the throne of God. And now we see they have access to the tree of life, which yields that fruit year-round, 12 months out of the year. We're constantly receiving the benefits and blessings and privileges of our covenant relationship with God. All right, so the vision depicts... The full number of the invisible church gaining access to their eternal inheritance. This is the culmination of all the promises from the Old and New Testament for the church. And so we witness actually an outward symbol of this in church membership. We witnessed that this morning. Right? But the blessings that we experience now in the context of the visible church are a mere taste of the perfection that awaits us for all eternity. And the reference here to the tree of life makes plain the implication that the covenant of grace, which began in chapter in Genesis 3.15, with the promise that, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent as it's crushing the heel of the seed of the woman, 
Right? It's, it's clearly a reference to the cross of Christ who's come to redeem us and rescue us. That promise was given in chapter 3 of Genesis 15, and that now it reaches its culmination at the very end of Scripture. The blessing of eternal life that humans were barred from after the fall is now restored. At the tree of life, they have access to it once again. And so all of redemptive history concludes with the separation of those who identify with God through his son and those who identify with Satan and who are left out of that celestial city. Now, children don't always understand this, but it's, it's really difficult to smell your own stench, right? Um, you, you might come home from the gym or working outside, and you have no idea how pungent you really are. And kids oftentimes will like kick off their shoes as they get in the car, and within seconds, everyone else is going, oh, right? I mean, they, no one else, uh, you can't really smell yourself, but everyone else can smell it. So the consequences of ignoring your filthy stench is that everyone else has to suffer breathing in the air that's been polluted by your presence, right? That's Maybe putting it a little strongly, but that's true. That everyone else suffers. Well, in a sense, God has assured that that will not be the case for all eternity. He's assured that by making those who enter have robes that are washed and clean. And those who remain in their filth are banished. They're excluded. They'll never be allowed to enter it. We don't have to fear or worry that someone's going to sneak in and destroy the joy of eternity. And so this list of wicked characters here in verse 15, it's not exhaustive. It's not as if, well, that doesn't describe me, so I must be free. I must not be one of those who's kicked out. It's not just a list for the worst of the worst. And in fact, you can look back in chapter 21, verse 8, you have almost an identical list. Um, And there it says that that group is said to receive their portion in the lake of fire. So being kicked outside is the same thing as being um, banished into the lake of fire. They'll receive that just judgment under the wrath of God. It's it's not talking about being annihilated or just simply being, um, you know, left in darkness or separated. It's, it's suffering under the, the, the very real wrath of God for all eternity. And so it, it mentions here dogs, and, and we won't get into this, but Jews often refer to Gentiles as dogs. More than likely, it's already begun to be used in a different sense by the end of the first century here. Um, and, and so it's probably a, a reference to those who remain unclean. Um, It could be a reference even to the false teachers like the Judaizers who Paul actually calls them dogs in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2. Um, And we know in Philippi is is a place even further away from Jerusalem. So these Judaizers had already made it past Asia Minor. Um, We we know that. So it could be a reference specifically to them. It might just be a general reference to false teachers. But either way, it's it's a, a reference to those who have come in to promote something that is untrue, some falsehood. And this list of figures would have been familiar to the original audience. 
the original reader. And they are being separated here. Those who have brought so much trial and tribulation into the midst of the church, they now recognize will be separated for all eternity. It's sort of a, a promise. It's a, it's a reminder to them to persevere through the trials. Persevere through the challenges. Even the division that you experience now, that'll be removed for all eternity. And so they're forbidden from entering into the city and, and contaminating, contaminating all of eternity with that filth. And in our series in the Ten Commandments, we acknowledged every week that every one of us has broken and continues to break the commandments of God, the law of God. None of us are capable of perfectly fulfilling the law in this life. And so as long as we remain in this body of flesh, we will wrestle with temptation. Read Romans 7 as an example of that, that struggle that we experience. And so this present verb, wash, that implies that believers persevere in their repentance and faith. That there is an ongoing need. It's not just an act, a single act of conversion where you profess faith in Christ and then you move on to bigger and better things. No, you, the gospel remains relevant and important to you every day of your Christian walk. The gospel remains just as important for seasoned saints as it does for newborn Christians. And so professing Christians at this time who were trying to live with one foot in the culture and one foot in the church had to choose their master. If they had more in common with this description of those outside the city, this warning would have given them something to pause, something to remind them once again of their need for repentance and faith. Maybe they thought that Christianity provided just a nice supplement uh, to, the, to their worldly lifestyle. They thought that they could indulge in the wayward cravings of their deceitful hearts without any of the consequences. But in reality, their lives proved their need for purification. And so may the Lord open the eyes of anyone who remains in their sinfulness this morning. And may they repent of their wickedness and their rampant idolatry and sexual immorality. And may they, they know that their Lord is the only one who can offer that cleansing that they need. They can only wash their robes in the blood of Christ. And so ensure that your robes have been washed, that you're continuing to wash them. Some of you are too busy comparing how much dirt you have on your garments compared to others. It's not about making sure that you have the, the cleanest robe. One single stain is enough to condemn you outside the celestial city. On the other hand, if you have washed your robe, then then every stain has been removed. Jesus offers cleansing, healing, and eternal blessing. And so you need to be reminded that you've been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And your entrance to the city is secured because of an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that doesn't come from you. It comes from outside of you and it's imputed to you. And on the cross, Jesus takes your filth upon himself. And he puts it to death on the cross. So the purification of the city is accomplished by the very one who's speaking in the next verse. 
in verse 16, it's the declaration of the Messiah. That's your second point in the outline. So you have the purification of the city, followed by the declaration of the Messiah. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendants of David, the bright morning star. The epilogue, this last section really beginning in verse 6 all the way to the end of the book, um, it's, it reflects upon the foundation and the motivation for worshiping God. Believers are encouraged to face the final judgment with hope rather than fear. And so the words of Jesus are interspersed throughout this section. And if you have a, a, a red letter Bible version, you'll see that. It's, it's interspersed throughout. Um, and, and it serves to authenticate this message. All of that is reiterated here in these verses, verses 14 through 17. And so this passage, it culminates in that final invitation that we'll see in the next verse. But here, Jesus provides once again this assurance that these words are his own testimony. These come from the Messiah. And so the second half of the verse describes these three different messianic references. It says he's the root, the descendants of David, and the bright morning star. Now, the reference there to the root comes from Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10, is a reference to this root or branch that comes from the stump of Jesse. Some of you have maybe even heard or practiced in your home the tradition of the Jesse tree. Uh, it's it's a, a helpful way of recognizing that all of redemptive history centers upon the coming of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? It's his birth, his, his death, his resurrection, and his return. All of, all of the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament find their culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah 11 and uh, I do encourage you as a family to take, to take that passage out this week and read it. You'll see there a reference not only to Christ's first coming, but also to his return in judgment. You see the combination of both there. It's as if the, the prophecy is, is providing a, a telescope of the entire present age. Right? He's, he's, you're looking at the entire thing from the first uh, coming to his return. And so the Messiah will return with righteous judgment, but he will also bring the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to their culmination. So the second half of Isaiah speaks about the lion and the lamb and, and, and the, the child placing its hand over the, the mouth of, a, of, a, of an asp, right? The, 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 not, the, not the mouth of the snake itself, but the hole of its home, right? So it's, ch children will be able to, to, to be completely carefree. There's not going to be a fear of death in eternity. And so the, all of that is recognized there in that passage, Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. It's just a brief reference to it in um, referring to the root, the descendant of David and the bright morning star. So again, as members of the church, we're, we're always to be ready. We're always to be recognizing that at any point, Christ can return. But I also want to point out in this verse, just that little phrase, that I paused each time I read it at the first, end of the first sentence, which is for the churches. I think that's important. 
We see that throughout Revelation. The testimony is for the churches. Now, we know that they were written, this book was written originally to the seven churches listed in chapters 2 and 3 in Asia Minor. And so those churches, this message, the entire book is relevant for them. It, there's a danger, I think, in reading biblical prophecy in one hand and then reading the newspaper in the other. I think you can be, you're highly likely to miss the purpose of the book. Right? You're liable to interpret Revelation in such a way that would never have made sense to that first century church. And so I think there's a safeguard here of overcomplicating our interpretation of eschatology, our interpretation of prophetic, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the, the books like Revelation or uh, Ezekiel or Daniel. There's a, there's a way to read that in an overcomplicated way where we're trying to attach every reference to some modern technology you know, talking about the mark of the beast or something like that. But if, you can, if you're reading it, and it would make no sense to a first century church, then you can be sure you're probably reading it wrong. The other danger is that you see God as having one purpose for Jewish saints, and then an entirely different purpose for Gentile saints. For instance, those who believe that the church has already been raptured prior to Christ's return in judgment will see the vast majority of the book of Revelation as only speaking to those Jewish converts who were left behind, along with any who were converted through their witness. Now, the biggest problem with that interpretation is that it was completely unheard of prior to late in the 19th century, which means Revelation was completely misunderstood by the church for most of its existence. That's a problem when Jesus is saying, I'm writing this for you. I'm writing this for the churches. It's as if his own words lack the necessary qualification not to worry about most of this stuff because it doesn't pertain to you. He says the opposite, in fact. So we don't have time to get bogged down into the minutia of, of dispensationalism, but the revelation of God is a gift to the church in every age, and we should all agree on that, right? He has secured the deliverance of his word through his angel and authenticated the message by his testimony. So the question is whether or not you believe his word. Now, you may still have questions about the meaning of certain passages. You might still wrestle with, with uh, what all of these things are referring to. That's, that's going to happen. That's understandable. But do you trust in the one who revealed it? That's what he's hammering home at the end here. So many people get stuck trying to solve every question that they have before taking that first step of faith. Now, we don't approach any other field of study that way. But some think that Christian faith requires an omniscient understanding of the world. Well, Revelation does not provide us with a comprehensive knowledge of the end times, but it does provide us 
with sufficient knowledge to respond in faith and repentance. And so we may quibble about the details, but all believers should be clear at this point. The first and proper response to revelation is to trust the one who provides it. And we know that faith itself is a gift from God. It's not the result of works that no one may boast. And so we cry out to him for the gift of repentance and faith. And that we do so in an ongoing sense as believers. So the purification of the city, followed by the declaration of the Messiah, has now prepared us for this climax in verse 17, the invitation to the thirsty. This verse provides much more than just the climax to the epilogue. It's, it's really the most fundamental theme of all of Scripture. Many commentators see the first half of the verse as a call from the Spirit and the bride for Christ to come. And that, that's a theme that you do find in the latter part here of Revelation. You see it clearly in verse 20 when, when um, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And this is the church responding, asking the Lord to come. And so some have said that really in verse 17, you have the spirit and the bride saying, come, calling out to Jesus as if they have one hand in, in pointed toward heaven, asking Jesus to come and another hand being held out to the lost saying, come. Because you can see here in the second half of verse 17, that that's clearly a reference to those outside let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So these are those who have not washed their robes yet that are being referenced there in the second half of the verse. So Joel Beakey has that illustration where he says the church is holding out one hand to heaven, calling for Jesus to come while holding out another hand to the lost, inviting them to respond. And I think it's a nice illustration and it's certainly possible, but I, I think it's more likely that the object is unbelievers in both invitations. And, and I, I follow Greg Bill on this point. Right? The invitation to come is extended from three different sources. The bride, or the spirit, the bride, as well as the one who hears. And so it fits with the key reference back to Isaiah 55.1, which we read earlier. It includes three imperatives to come in that verse. So the first one, we could say, is the call of the Spirit, which Scripture makes clear is effectual. This is the same Spirit who spoke through the prophets in the Old Covenant. The same Spirit invites people in every age. Those who respond in faith do so because the call of the Spirit is effectual. It's the work of the Spirit to enlighten our minds, transforming our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, that were softened and, and prepared to respond in obedience and faith. Uh, it's the work of the Spirit to renew our wills, to give us a desire for God. And the only reason any of us see the beauty of Jesus and willingly embrace him as our Lord and Savior is because of the Spirit's effectual drawing of us. So you have the call of the Spirit. You also have the call of the bride, which is general. It's universal. The church extends the call of the gospel to all people. We don't select and choose who's worthy to hear the call. We preach to anyone who's willing to hear it. 
One characteristic of preachers during the, the first great, great awakening was their invitation to sinners to respond to the preaching in faith. George Whitfield would end nearly every sermon with his hands raised and tears streaming down his face as he would plead for sinners to come to Jesus. And so the call of the bride is universal, it's general, it's to all people. But then this third one is important as well. It's the call of the hearer. And I think it's natural. It's the instinctual response when we've gone through something life transformational, right? When you, when you hear a message that transforms your life, you desire to share that message with others. And so we desire to share what had a significant impact upon our life. Has, has the excitement of sharing your faith worn off over the years? Has maybe repeated rejection left you timid to invite others to come to Jesus? If you've heard the gospel, and if you've responded with faith, then you're expected to add your voice to the testimony of the bride. Jesus calls that, calls us to that. The one who hears also says, come. And so along with the rest of the saints, you can boldly extend that invitation to the lost, expecting that many will reject it, but some, because of the call of the Spirit, some will respond. And some will place their faith in Christ. And so those who thirst for the water that Jesus offers will respond to the invitation and come. When Jesus confronted the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, he offers her living water that would quench her thirst forever. And so when we respond to the gospel invitation with faith, our thirst shifts from, those, from seeking after worldly pleasures and thirsting after the Lord's superior blessings. And so this living water is priceless, but we receive it free of charge. Again, that's, it, it comes from Isaiah 55.1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Don't go around scrounging through your couch to try to find some money so that you can bring an offering to the Lord in order to earn your right standing with him. That only proves you don't understand the invitation is a free offer. You come without money. You come nothing. You come with nothing in your hands. You come clinging to Christ alone. And so the invitation is extended to those who know they are thirsty. There comes a point in, in every believer's life that, where they recognize that only God could satisfy the longing of their heart. And so if you sense your thirst and you hear the voice of the Spirit and the bride, inviting you to come, And then don't delay your response. 
the same spirit who extends that invitation to you will enable you to respond in repentance and faith. And so your flesh will come up with a thousand excuses for why you're not ready. And you might still have questions that you want answered. But here's what it boils down to. Do you desire the water of life? Because if you thirst for a spiritual fulfillment, then you need to know that it can only be found in Christ. And if that describes you, then he has removed every excuse you can think of. He freely offers himself to you this morning. You cannot purchase living water. You can simply receive it by faith. And so I pray that you would do so this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this invitation to respond to the call of the Spirit, the call of the Bride of Christ, the Church, extending the gospel invitation to all. And then everyone who hears and who has responded to that call also joins in the the chorus of the saints, calling those to respond in obedience, to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, to turn away from the sin and to turn away from the, all of the worldly pleasures that they've sought to quench their thirst by, and to turn to the only one who truly can satisfy that thirst and who has promised to do so for all eternity for those who turn to him. Lord, we pray that you would add to your church this morning. That, that, that many would come to know you through the preaching of the gospel from this pulpit. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to have a church here in this community to proclaim the gospel in a season that is filled with confusion and darkness and sadness. Lord, we need to be stirred up with joy and hope of an eternity that awaits us. So Lord, keep that, that vision before your, your saints this morning. I mean, as we enjoy the fellowship of, uh, of a meal together, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, as we enjoy the singing of our children, Lord, may all of it remind us of the blessings of belonging to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has rescued us out of this present darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.